0: Let's pray. Father, we are again grateful for your word. And we ask you to hear what you would have us to hear. Receive what you'd have us to receive. And do what you'd have us to do in response to your word. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we looked at the story of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And this week we're going to look at the companion story to that story in the next chapter, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. This story in John 4 is, as I I just have talked to people throughout my life in the church, this story is one of the most beloved stories in, in all the Gospels. We love this story, and and rightfully so. It is a deep and rich and beautiful story. I I preached on this passage three years ago, and I don't usually remember what I preached last week, much less three years ago. Uh, But I do remember studying this passage and just being overwhelmed by how much is in this passage, how, how rich and deep this passage is. And some of what I'm going to say today draws on what I said three years ago. I'm sure you all, you all remember that sermon very perfectly. Um, but I, I want to look at it from a different angle today. Three years ago, we looked at the beautiful and strong theme of marriage and wedding in this passage. This is it, marriage and wedding bells ring out through this entire passage from, from beginning to end. It is soaked in wedding and, and marriage imagery and illusions. But today, I want us to look at it as a continuation of what Jesus began in his conversation with Nicodemus. We remember the, the theme that, we, that John sets up in the first two chapters and he illustrates in Nicodemus and now in in John four, the theme of the fact that we as humans are frail in our understanding. We look at Jesus and we need someone to bear witness to him. We do not understand. We do not understand who he is. Where Jesus looks at, at, at men and he knows immediately, he knows what is in their heart. And he knows what they need in order to become his children. And here we will look again at how Jesus, as he did with Nicodemus, looks at this woman, sees her, knows her, and leads her to an understanding of who he is and leads her to a point where she gives herself to him. She believes in his name, as we saw last week. That is not just merely a show of appreciation for him, a recognition of his goodness, but a giving of herself to him. Now, to understand John 4 well, we do need an understanding. Or to, I need to remind us of some Old Testament history. History surrounding the kingdom of Israel. So God brought his people, his covenant people, into the land, in the promised land. And for a long, it was a long time before they were fully established in the land. And they really became fully established in the land under David. When the kingdom begins under Saul, it doesn't go well. God anoints David, says, this is my man. And we have King David, and and then the kingdom is fully established in the land. But it doesn't last long, right? There's David, and then there's Solomon, and then David's grandson, Rehoboam. And under David's grandson, Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. So we have the northern kingdom, which retains the title of Israel, we have the southern kingdom, which goes by the name of Judah. And the northern kingdom has about 19 kings over 20 years. Oh, not 20 years, 200 years, roughly 200 years. None of the kings are good. And in around 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes to Israel. They overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. And they do what the Assyrians do as they capture land. They take a large portion of the population and they move it out of the land, leaving some people there, but a large portion they take out. And then they go to other regions around and they bring other people to live in Israel. In this case, in 2 Kings 17, we are told that they bring a people from five different regions around Israel and they bring these people to Israel, to populate the land. Now, these people, these five different people groups, they bring with them their gods. And they bring with them their gods. But, of course, as they're going to a new land, they also need to worship the god of that land. And so these five people groups come with their gods. And then there is the people there in the land who uh, still retain, though they have been faithful, they still retain their Jewish heritage and their um, their ideas of, of, of the Jewish Hebrew God. And so what comes from this is this sort of mashup of these five different gods along with the God of the land, the Hebrew God. And what comes is sort of a, a synchronistic religion combining the worship of all these things, all these different gods. Now, the southern kingdom... Exists for another century and a half after the fall of the northern kingdom. Judah uh, uh, is then captured by Babylon, exiled, and then returned 70 years later. And the southern kingdom has learned its lesson. The exile cures Judah, and the, the Jews that come back, of their habit of wandering after other gods, the, the pagan gods of the area. No longer... No longer will they worship Baal and the, the Ashtoreth and all the gods of the land. Now they've learned their lesson. They are now extremely jealous for the law and the worship of God in Jerusalem. They are, this is their thing. They have learned not to do that, right? And as they return, there is the people in Samaria who had this, this synchronistic religion. And the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem who are now zealous for the the law and and God and worship in Jerusalem. And these two groups have a heated rivalry. They do not like each other. For very understandable reasons, the the Jewish people who worship God in Jerusalem look at Samaritans and says, that right there, that is why we were exiled. That is why we were overrun. We can't do that. You can't do that. We cannot have anything to do with you. And this, this rivalry goes, this dislike goes, continues on for centuries. As a matter of fact, the Samaritan religion still exists today. It's one of the smallest religions in the world. There's about 800, about 800 Samaritans who still live and worship around Mount Gerizim where they claimed the true worship of God should take place. But in Jesus' day, 400 years after the exile and return, these two groups, the Jewish people and the Samaritans, were still in in this heated rivalry. They they did not like it. The Jews, the Samaritans for the Jews were very unclean and that association with them would hinder God's blessing of them and would bring about more oppression from, from uh, from foreign nations. And so the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. In fact... Samaria, where the Samaritans lived, was sort of right in the middle between the two centers of Jewish population. You had Jerusalem down here, you had Galilee to the north, and right in the middle was Samaria. And so the Jews, in order to not be contaminated by the Samaritans, when they would travel from one place to the other, would cross over the Jordan to the east, go up around... Uh, and then cross back over the jordan to get to galilee they, they would not cro- go through samaria so when we get to john 4 we see that jesus is doing making that trip from from jerusalem to galilee but john says he had to go through jerusalem or through samaria does he, he had to go through samaria he doesn't say why he had to go through through samaria he just says he had to go through samaria we are left to Assume possibly that the reason, the necessity for him going through Samaria is for the one event that is recorded about this journey. That he had to go through Samaria to meet this woman at the well. So we see him coming to the well in Samaria and there he meets the woman. He's thirsty and he asks for a drink. And she is taken aback, and and rightly so. Jesus is breaking uh, many social norms in asking her for a drink. He's acting strangely. This is not normal behavior. Men, for one, were discouraged for propriety's sake. Men were discouraged from talking with women in these sorts of situations. And certainly, a Jewish man would, would never share a meal or a drink with a Samaritan. It's considered inappropriate. So with Jesus transgressing such obvious social norms, the woman is justified in wondering about this sketchy man. She knows nothing about him. She just knows that he's breaking social norms. And so she asks, how is it that you, a Jew, ask water from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus In reply, says, you don't know who you're talking to. If you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for water and I would give you living water. Probably not the response the woman expects. And once again, Jesus is immediately highlighting, as he did with Nicodemus, Jesus is immediately highlighting the fact that he knows and understands that which the person he's talking to does not. He knows something much deeper, something heavenly, that is above and beyond the earthly material understanding of his interlocutor. Jesus is clearly offering more than a cup of cold water to the woman. He's offering her something much greater. And like Nicodemus, he's telling her of her need. He has clearly expressed a need for water. He's thirsty. And now he's turning to her and saying, but you have a need that is greater. You could provide me something which would quench my physical thirst. I can provide you something that, is, that, is, that would quench a much deeper need than my thirst." Like with Nicodemus, he speaks of the need for baptism here. The term living water means water from a running source. That's its basic meaning. So as opposed to water from a pond or a lake, living water meant water that flowed in a river or a stream. It moved, a fountain that bubbles up. And living water was what was needed When the Jews went to worship, they must ritually cleanse themselves before they could go and do their worship. And they must cleanse themselves with living water, with with water that was pure and clean. So too, when a non-Jewish person wanted to enter into the Jewish faith, someone like a Samaritan wanted to become an observant Jew, they would have to be baptized. And they would be baptized In living water. So Jesus, like when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit, a hint at baptism. Here he's saying, I have something for you. You have a need which I can provide, which you you do not even understand yet. And she, she shows that she still, she doesn't understand, right? So she responds to Jesus by saying, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where would you get living water anyway? Where did that come from? Are you greater than our father Jacob who dug this well? So clearly, as when when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or born from above. Nicodemus says, well, how can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? That doesn't make sense. Here, she, missing what he's saying, says well how are you going to get how are you going to get water to give me this living water but then she references are you greater than our father jacob which for one shows that she considers herself among as a samaritan among the covenant people of god this is our father jacob our patriarch right are you greater than him but it also shows that i think she has a hint here she has maybe a little niggling thing in her mind that tells her maybe, maybe he's talking about more than just physical water. Maybe, maybe there's something more in this. And Jesus makes it clear in his response that he's not just talking about water from the well. He says, drink this water and you will thirst again. Drink the water that I will give you and you will never thirst again. In fact, It will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds with, sir, a term of respect, sir. So she's not being dismissive. She's not sort of joking along with this crazy man. She says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. It's a remarkable response. Most of us, at least I would, I know, in this situation, I think, say, all right, you clearly need some water. I'm gonna give you water and then I'm gonna get away from you as quickly as I can because you're acting really strangely and you're saying funny things. But this woman is drawn. And she says, without, now she still doesn't understand. She still doesn't understand who he is and what he's doing. But she she seems to sense that he he has something that she needs. And she says, Sir, give me this water that I may never thirst again. That I may never come here to draw. She doesn't like what she's doing. She doesn't like coming here to get water. Give me this water. Now, it would seem to me, it would seem to me that in this act, Jesus would say, yes, that is faith. You're believing in me. Welcome. Welcome. You are my child. Similar, it would be similar to the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into it. Just just the act. This is the best I've got. This is the act of, of faith. And Jesus says, yes. But he doesn't. Matter of fact, he does something very strange. He says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. Now, for many years, I took this to be something of a prophetic parlor trick that Jesus is is playing, that Jesus is looking at the Samaritan woman and saying, I can tell you something about yourself that I couldn't possibly know. It's impossible for me to know this, but I'm going to tell it to you. And in that way, when I do this, you'll know that I'm really somebody special. That I'm not just a guy at the well, because I'm going to to share a secret that I couldn't know. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong. Jesus does this at times. He shows that he is God by showing his omniscience. He did it with Andrew in in John 1, right? I saw you when you were under the fig tree. How did you know that? And here he does it. I know something about you. But when he does this, he's not just playing games. He is doing something much deeper than that. He does present himself as the omniscient revealer of things. But he picks things in the people's lives that tells them about themselves. He's not just playing a game. In this instance, Jesus is retelling the history of the Samaritans along with the story of this woman. This is the history of the Samaritans. Remember, there were five different groups when Assyria left. There were five different groups that were brought in to Israel who brought their gods. And they formed then a cultural religious mashup to have a religion, a God that was not truly a husband. And husband here, the word husband is loaded. Listen to the prophet Hosea, chapter number two. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. you You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my Baal. Baal is a generic word for God, for a God it is also one of two Hebrew words for husband. Because a God was the husband of the people who worshipped him. He was the husband of his followers. And thus in the Old Testament, when the people are idolatrous and follow other gods, it is almost always referred to as adultery. Why? Because here's the husband, here are the people. And they are not following their husband. They are not in communion with their husband. They are committing adultery. So when, when he's referring to the woman's husbands, he's not just referring to her husbands. He is retelling the story of Samaria, who has had five husbands, and together with sort of the Israeli Hebrew God, to make now sort of a hybrid adulterous affair. So, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, If you want the spring of water that I have to offer, this idolatrous worship is a problem. It's a problem. And the woman picks up on this. This is not lost on the woman. What is her response? I see that you're a prophet. The parlor trick kind of worked. I see that you're a prophet. We, Samaritans, worship here at Mount Gerizim. While Jews worship in Jerusalem, she picks up on the idea of worship. Worship is important. And she just makes that statement. You're a Jew, you worship in Jerusalem. We're Samaritans, we worship Mount Gerizim. Just a statement. But implied in that statement are questions. Which of us is right? Where should you worship? Does it it matter? We worship here, you worship there. Does Does it really matter? And Jesus says when it comes to worship, it does matter. And in fact, the Jews are right. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. And salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Samaritans are wrong. Samaritan worship, though it claims to worship the God of Abraham, though it it claimed to follow the Torah, is not true worship. Salvation comes through the Jews. And what he's not saying is salvation is standing here in front of you in the form of a Jewish man. But we we realize that and know that. But he does say the focus on geography is wrong. Jewish worship is right. Salvation will come through that. Samaritan worship is wrong. But geography is not the point. It's not where you're going to worship, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there's going to come time soon, he says, where you're not going to worship Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. It's not where you're going to worship, but who and how. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that is what the Father is looking for, those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, a very common common telling of this, what Jesus means by this that I hear pretty frequently now is that what Jesus, what God the Father is looking for is people who will worship Him sincerely, who really mean when they worship. Sincerity, with spirit and truth means sincerity. The spirit part means not in a specific place, Jerusalem, anywhere. And the truth means insincerity. And this is a very, very weak reading of what Jesus is doing. Sincerity, of course. God does not receive hypocritical worship. Worship in name only. But Jesus is the one, all that John is doing, everything John has done in the first four chapters is to portray Jesus as the one who comes to teach those who do not know what truth is. You cannot understand what truth is. Jesus is going to come and reveal to us what that truth is. So truth means more than just sincerity. True worshipers, Jesus says, true worshipers will worship in accordance with the revealed reality of God's nature. They will worship in accordance with who God is and who He has revealed Himself to be. This is not the first or the last time that Jesus in the book of John will relate spirit and truth. Later when talking to His disciples, He will look at them and say, Speaking of the Holy Spirit, when I'm gone, there will come to you the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth, who will show you the true and right way. You do not understand everything now. That's okay. That's okay. I'm going to reveal it to you. The Spirit is going to reveal it to you. And when that time comes, as it's revealed, it will be to you to whether or not to receive it and to live by it or not. And he did that. We see the Spirit leading his, God's people through the book of Acts and then on into the centuries, first centuries, as they wrestled with these mysteries of who Christ is that we could not understand on our own. So we come to understand now who he is and God says, I'm looking for people who worship me sincerely as I reveal myself to be. So that all of us who rightly say, and when we look at God, I don't understand who, who this being is, we say, that's, that's, that's okay. I will lead you. Listen to what I reveal to you. Listen to what I tell you. Obey that. Follow that. Unlike the Nicodemus story, in this story in John 4, we get to see the moment when the Samaritan woman's eyes are opened to revelation. We get to see sort of the aha moment. In the Nicodemus story, it happens in the dark. We see the results later Nicodemus following Christ, obeying Christ, standing up for him when others won't. But we don't really ever get to see the moment when it dawns on him. In this story we do, and it's a beautiful thing. When she comes to believe in him, and not just believe as an expressing approval, but believe in him as a bride who gives herself to the bridegroom, to the bridegroom who has given himself for her. The woman says, I know a Messiah is coming. And she says it, I think, with hope, with expectation, with desire. I know a Messiah is coming. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And her response is to go tell everyone she can find about the glory of the Christ she has met. She loves him. She cannot stop talking about him. Not because, not because he played a trick, but because he has shown her truth. He has shown her her need and has shown her that he has that which meets her need. So Jesus, as he did with Nicodemus, has met here a woman who he has seen perfectly. A woman who did not, I don't think, understand herself or the man she met at the beginning. And he has led her to an understanding of him, an understanding of herself, an understanding of her need, and an understanding of what he offers to her. And she has received it. It's a very personal story. So what can we, who are not first century Samaritan women, what can we during this time of Lent receive? How how can this help us during this time of Lent? There are a whole lot of ways, but let let me mention two that I think are appropriate for Lent. One, God's campaign against idolatry is unrelenting. Most of us are okay when Jesus tells Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee and a ruler of Israel, that he needs to humble himself. That if he is going to enter in to... if 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 he seeks the elevation and exaltation that a Pharisee seeks, he must do that through the way of the cross because true glorification comes only through the cross. We're okay hearing that. Many of us, however, are less comfortable with the fact that Jesus will tell this woman who is a part of a shunned minority group and whose life has been clearly a very difficult life that her worship and culture is wrong, lacking, and needs to change. That is That is breaking current social norms, but this is what Jesus does. He does it very gently as he does with Nicodemus. He does it very gently and lovingly, but he cannot have idolatry. And if Jesus will not scruple to speak against the Samaritan woman's idolatry, how much less will he scruple to speak against ours. But you say, Father TJ, I'm here worshiping with you. Hope this is not idolatry, what we're doing now. And I do not believe it is. This is not idolatry. We are, I think, worshiping according to the revelation of God's nature. However, if you are a human being not named Jesus Christ, then you struggle with the temptation to have idols. It is pervasive amongst all humankind. We all struggle with idolatry. Every one of us. From the very first sin, this has been our struggle. To look at God and say, I think I have something better. I, have, I think I have something I like more. I have, think I have something that will make me happier. I'll take some of you and I'll have some other husbands as well. Because I, I, I need those. We all do this. Perhaps it is a worship of comfort. Why does I need comfort? This is is pervasive in our area, in our culture, comfort. Any threat to our comfort is a threat to a God. Money, and I don't mean money as in I want to be, have millions and billions. I mean, I want to have enough to live comfortably, in ease. I want to have just enough to have that nice middle class, upper middle class, (laughs) lifestyle. I'm not greedy because I don't really want the billions. Just enough so that I can have what I want. And a threat to that is a threat to my God, to my husband. Appetites are physical appetites. We don't speak much about gluttony these days. Gluttony is a sin. Gluttony is the worship of the physical. And my desire to consume to be greater than, to consume, to bring all things into myself. The desire to be God. Like all idolatry, it is a desire to be God. So appetites, as in food, are lusts. I worship God, but don't tell me what I'm supposed to do with my body. I'll decide what I want to do with my body, how I feed my appetites, my lusts, what I do with them. Some of us are like Nicodemus. We need respect and glory, we need the admiration of other humans. That's what I'm after. Give me what I'm due, give me what I'm owed. Pay me what I'm worth. And if you don't, I'm offended. Relationships are broken. And I'll go find somebody who will worship me and pay me my tithes and offerings. Control. How many of us need control over our lives, over other people? The desire to be God. To desire control as God controls. To control my world. It's idolatry. To these, to us, Jesus says, whatever one of these may be or something else, I have this water to give you. The idolatry is a problem. can't have other husbands. You have one husband. During Lent it is a good and appropriate time to ask God, what other husbands do I have? Where are my idols? Reveal them to me and give me the grace and strength to cling to you and you alone. One more thing that I see both in the Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman's passage Jesus isn't afraid to speak truth, even if it seems silly or absurd to the hearers. Clearly, Nicodemus and the woman at the well thought what he had to say at the beginning was just. How can I go into my mother's womb and be born again? That's just silly. How are you going to get, you don't have anything to draw water with. You're being silly. Jesus doesn't seem to care. He's going to speak truth. He's going to tell people what truth is. And he doesn't seem to be super anxious over where the, where, how they receive it. Constantly through the book of John, especially, Jesus looks at people who are following him and says, this is who I am. This is what I have to offer. You may accept it or reject it. In the case of Nicodemus and the woman at the well, they they receive, they press into it. Though they don't understand, they press into it. They will come back. We mentioned this last week. John 6. He has a host of disciples who follow him. And he says these same sort of completely ununderstandable sort of things. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the people say, Whew, that's really hard. I don't know if I can accept that. That's really strange and absurd sounding stuff there, Jesus. And Jesus says, if that's hard, there's more hard stuff to come. If you stumble at that, you're going to stumble at something later. This is how it is. This is who I am. This is what I have to offer. You may accept it or reject it. He does it gently. He does it lovingly, but he does it very firmly. Massive disciples in John 6 leave. He turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave? And Peter says, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of life? Peter doesn't say, oh, I understood what you're talking about. I, I, I know, I understood, I got it. They, all, they couldn't get it, I got it, I understand. He simply says, where else am I going to go? I don't understand, but where, who else has the words of life? Jesus speaks truth. He does it lovingly and gently, but he speaks truth. And so are we to do that as well. We tend to fall off on either one of those sides. We, we think that love and gentleness means not speaking truth. Or we speak that, think that speaking truth means not being loving and gentle. Jesus says, I will do both. I will speak truth, and I will do it gently and lovingly. And how people respond to that is there. When people respond poorly, he doesn't run after them and say, no, 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 it's okay, it doesn't matter. Here's what it is, here's how it is. And we must, too, learn to speak truth, even if it sounds silly and absurd to other people. we must learn to do it gently and lovingly, desiring not to mock them, not to shame them, but desiring for them to love what we have come to love, like the Samaritan woman came to love our Christ. So, let us not be afraid or ashamed to speak truth, but let us make sure as best we can, that we are ridding ourselves of the idols that we hold dear in our heart as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.